The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm the show's engineer. My name is Lloyd, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, O'Reilly, Araldo, Montel, lots of other shows. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, you know that I am always concerned about consumers. And I want to tell you, tonight we have a guest who is really a champion for consumers. He's a consumer lawyer from Virginia, which I used to live in Virginia, beautiful place. And we're going to talk to him tonight. Let me tell you a little bit about Len Bennett, who is a Privacy and Fair Credit Reporting Act expert and consumer attorney. Len is a nationally recognized consumer attorney. He has litigated cases throughout the country, and he has testified before Congress on several occasions. In one of his most recent testimonies before the House Committee on Financial Services, he exposed a lot of very interesting information that we're going to talk about. And he talked about Fair Credit Reporting Act and how it functions for consumers and the economy and how it doesn't function as well. Len Bennett is a mentor to many attorneys, and his practice is limited to representation of consumers. There's so much more I could tell about all of the wonderful speeches and training and great cases he's done, but you can find out more about him at two great websites. One is ConsumerLawUSA.com and MyFairCredit.com. Also, there's a toll-free number if you do have a question, and that's 877-FCRA-LAW. Len, thank you so much for joining us. Now, you're not in Virginia right now, are you? Actually, I'm in a different place in Virginia. I am in Virginia. Oh, you are? We're in Richmond, Virginia right now, the middle of our state. Well, I loved your state. I lived in Charlottesville, and I, just for a short time, for three years, but I loved it. Virginia's very historical, love Thomas Jefferson's home, and everybody, it's it's great. Good place to be from. Yes, we enjoy it so far. Lent, so here you are, a, a lawyer in the law firm of Consumer Litigation Associates. Tell my audience, what is this consumer litigation? Well, our practice and, and our profession is limited to representing consumers in their efforts to go to court and enforce the various rights, the numerous rights that Congress or that state governments have established for consumers. In the instance of privacy, for example, enforcing the important Fair Credit Reporting Act, a, a law that 
you yourself are an expert in, uh, as well as other areas of consumer protection, be it suing for predatory lending or mortgage abuses or against a car dealer that rolls back an odometer. That's the field of consumer litigation. Yeah, very important stuff. The little guy gets hurt quite often. What is your background in credit reporting litigation, and how many cases have you been involved in? Well, uh, certainly I think of all of my areas of consumer advocacy, the one that I've had the, the certainly the most success in and, and as well the most interest in has been the Fair Credit Reporting Act and privacy litigation. Uh, the number of cases is certainly in the hundreds. I think that we've tried about as many cases to juries under the Fair Credit Reporting Act as any of our the other various advocates that, that you yourself are close to and friends with, and we've had a number of them on appeal. I'm in Richmond right now. We're getting ready to uh, defend one of our jury verdicts before the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals tomorrow morning that A bank that lost that case has appealed and is trying to set aside the verdict in favor of our consumer, Mr. Saunders. Good luck. Let's talk about how you do this process. Walk me through the process when a consumer comes to you for help with their credit reports when they've got a lot of problems on there that are errors or identity theft. Tell us how it works. In most instances, and and most of our practice, and there are other lawyers in my firm, I think we have another national expert, Matt Roskowin, that's uh, actually a California licensed attorney as well, but they'll come to Matt or they'll come to me or any of our paralegals or other lawyers with the credit reporting problem. And typically the consumer will come in and and not know how it occurred. Uh, For example, whether it's identity theft or whether it's simply uh, a mistaken reporting by a creditor or by a reporting agency. And our first task is to meet with the consumer, is to look over their credit reports, to have the consumer exercise the right to obtain a free credit report um, at, for example, annualcreditreport.com. And then we'll go through the credit report with the consumer, uh, either in person or correspond by electronically or by telephone. We'll assist the consumer in putting together dispute letters. Uh, We insist on very detailed written disputes sent by certified mail to the national reporting agencies where they're then sent out, uh, we're always optimistic that the reporting agencies will comply with the law, correct the credit reports in accordance with the consumer's uh, advices and and information. Uh, But in the event that that doesn't happen, then the consumer comes back to us. If the information is fixed, uh, then the consumer doesn't need a consumer litigator, and it's it's a happy ending. Uh, We certainly, we don't charge for that representation. And and that's fairly uniform with a number of different consumer advocates that do this type of work. On the other hand, if the report isn't fixed and it's been adequately disputed and the consumer has exhausted their options, uh, usually that's occurred, then we will be drafting a lawsuit and we'll be filing a lawsuit in almost every instance in the appropriate federal court. And, you know, the the truth of the matter is, is that, what is it, 70 to 75 percent of credit reports have errors, and about 25 percent of those are enough to keep you from even getting a job. So it's really important that people get those credit reports and make sure that they're correct, right? That's absolutely true. You, you figure that uh, most creditors are buying credit reports from these agencies, and these agencies are selling them for pennies often, two, three, four cents to the creditor. Uh, and there's this entire business disincentive 
to spend much time assuring the accuracy of of the information in the report. It just in a dollars and cents world, the consumer's accuracy concerns uh, are second to the uh, the profit and cost concerns in putting these reports together. And so that it it's becoming, uh, to the extent the statistics that you are familiar with, that I'm familiar with, or in past years, uh, evidence gross inaccuracies in credit reporting, I think it's it's more likely to continue and to become significantly worse as more and more become automated. And I think a lot of consumers don't really realize that we as consumers are not really the customers of the credit bureaus, unless, of course, we buy their credit monitoring and their insurance and all those other things. But really, tell them about who the real customers of the credit reporting agencies are. Sure. Well, when you, when you look at the manuals at Equifax, Experian, TransUnion, uh, you look at their internal correspondence, they always are referring to the creditors that pay them money, their subscribers, as customers. They use that language. And the consumer is never referred to as a customer. Uh, most of the interactions with the consumer until until the last several years have always been expenses. They've never been a profit center and have never offered opportunity for profit. So the consumer was in almost every instance, secondary to the customer. Uh, You've pointed out, Maria, an important point that in my 2007 congressional testimony, I outlined some of the numbers that are available uh, for the publicly traded reporting agencies, where it used to be that almost all their money, 99% of the money from the reporting agencies came from the sale of credit reports to creditors and to insurance companies, employers, a significant part of their profit is now made in selling credit monitoring and credit products to consumers. And that business, of course, is generated in large part by uh, the very inaccuracy that, that you right. just described. That, they get that, you coming and going. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so they, that you, you have to pay Equifax, Experian, or TransUnion money so that you can monitor your, your report to make sure that Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian <laughs> don't screw it up. Right. And and as much as we want to encourage the credit bureaus to be careful and be accurate and do all that, they have no incentive to do it because at this point, by, by virtue of the fact that there is so much identity theft and there are so many errors, they can tell you how important it is that you monitor it to let them know. It's It's insane. It really is. Um, you, you've also had an opportunity with all the litigation that you've done and the discovery, the depositions. You've, I've read some of the inf- fantastic information that you've been able to reveal from that um, from the credit bureaus. Tell my audience exactly how the credit reporting process really does work. Well, again, as I insinuated, it's almost entirely automated. It begins with the the creditor, and let's take an example of a a bank, um, a credit card company bank. The consumer has applied for credit, obtained the credit card account, and there's a balance or an open account. Well, that's where the reporting process can begin, with the credit card company reporting in a format called Metro, or now Metro 2, that it's it's a universal coding that's used with all three bureaus and anybody that reports to them. Uh, and it, it consists of certain fields. If you imagine an electronic form that it has a space for name, 
first name, middle name, last name, social, fields for account history, the balances, past due, the payment history, and so forth. And all that information is reported each month, in most instances, through direct electronic connection to the bureaus, uh, for every account in that creditor's file. That information is then sent to and received at, uh, let's take Experian in, in Costa Mesa, California, uh, or its headquartered uh, for consumer disputes and so forth in, in Texas. That information is then sorted with the reporting agency, in that example, Experian, sorting the information from uh, one file to the other and trying to come up with a closest match that they choose to match for that particular credit card account to a file. That report is then, uh, or that file is then saved and archived uh, electronically. But what consumers often don't know is that the report that is ultimately outputted when you go to a mortgage company and you apply for a loan or you order your own credit report off annualcreditreport.com, the credit bureaus will use various algorithms to determine which of those various accounts in the file to report. For example, if you are John Smith living on Main Street, it is certainly possible that the credit reporting agency will produce more than simply your accounts. They would produce other John Smiths living on Main Street in your city uh, or with comparable uh, even first initial, so James Smith living on Main Street. If his Social Security is close, though not exact, that information could be matched. And so there's this matching process that works sometimes and doesn't work others uh, that's used based on the target. Some creditors get more and want more exact data than others do. And it's thereafter sold uh, in an electronic form to whatever end user wants to use it. And a lot of consumers don't know this, Len. They don't know that the creditor gets an entirely different report than the one that they can pull up as a consumer report at annualcreditreport.com for free or that they get if they write to them and pay for it, that it's a different report. Sometimes the consumer's report will have mixed up files, you know, like you said, like a John Smith or a Susan Miller or something like that. But what the creditor gets can have a lot more stuff on there that doesn't have anything to do with you, right? Absolutely. In fact, again, remember that I'm a consumer litigator. so You get to most, see that. <laughs> that's right. What, it's one of the challenging uh, tasks in the litigation of one of these, for example, an identity theft lawsuit, uh, when a consumer's tried to get the report fixed for a period of time and the credit bureaus have not permitted them to do so, one of the challenges is really recreating a paper trail to prove exactly what the Bureau told our clients' creditors, because the reports our client have might not have all the negative and inaccurate information. We have to gather, usually through subpoena, from various other third parties that received our client's credit report so we can compare what they received yes. against what the Bureau told our client they were sending. And in most instances in that type of problem, they're different. You know something that that is so amazing to me, because when I back in 1996, you know, I was a victim of identity theft myself. And at that time, people didn't really know what identity theft was. And I didn't even know. And 
what I ended up doing was, you know, demanding to get documentation from all of the creditors who had issued reports, and I actually was able to get copies of the credit reports that they received that had all these different things on them that I had that were not matching what I had gotten. And I had asked many times when I've testified in Congress that that it be required that the consumer get a copy of what the creditor receives so that they can see what is on there, whether they're given the credit or denied the credit. They should still be able to see what in the world the creditor is seeing so there's transparency. And we haven't been able to get that. Have you been, um, you know, has NACA tried to get some legislation passed that, that would force the creditors, credit reporting agencies, to provide at least the same exact copy or at least that the creditor provide a copy of what they receive? Is there anything out there that you think there's a possibility we could get that passed? Well, actually, in 2003, one of the issues that we were advocating for NACA and other consumer groups, and as you're well aware, um, your, your audience certainly should understand that that you're an expert in your own right and, and active in your own right with these various attempts to change the law. But uh, for your audience, the 2003 testimony was in part uh, asking for uh, Congress to require the same report be provided to a consumer that requests it, that is provided to their uh, agency's customer. And the result was that Congress, in FACTA, the amendments to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, passed a law that required the Federal Trade Commission to study whether or not that should be required. Uh, and very disappointing uh, result was that the Federal Trade Commission concluded, almost frankly and, and objectively, uh, through uh, considerable misinformation from the credit reporting agencies themselves, that it would be too onerous of a requirement to insist that the consumer be able to see the same report that the creditor sees. And so the Federal Trade Commission report, as a result of FACTA, did not uh, advocate that requirement, uh, basically concluding, amongst other things, that it uh, would be the kind of thing to wait and see. Uh, certainly that's one of the big issues that consumer advocates insist on or continue to try to insist on as an improvement in the current regulatory structure. But as it stands right now, there's nothing pending. You know, even if the credit reporting agencies have too much power so that we, you know, and the, too many good lobbyists so we can't get that passed, how about the creditors being uh, being required to provide a copy when they get it and you've applied for credit, they got a credit report, and that they be required to give it to if you ask for it? Well, well, and that was one of the issues that was considered and, and we've not been successful with. Uh, in fact, you've been doing this longer than I have. Uh, the uh, It used to be the Fair Credit Reporting Act did not have a requirement or a prohibition, as I'm about, a prohibition I'm about to describe. Uh, the contracts between creditors and the reporting agencies actually prohibited the creditor from sharing with the customer, the consumer rather, the credit report. Right. And and it was barred. And there were amendments uh, implemented in the Fair Credit Reporting Act that prohibit uh, 
the reporting agency from stopping creditors from sharing the re- actual reports, but there is still nothing on the books that it requires, requires creditors it, right. to share. Yeah, I, I usually get it and I see it. For example, if I've applied through my own Bank of America and I'm a premier customer and I'll say, if I applied for a loan, I'll say, give me a copy and I can get it. You know, I can get it because I, I'm a, a longtime customer with them. But a lot of people don't really demand, and I think that they should. And then once they see the discrepancy, boy, that, that just, I think, is, is very eye-opening. What are some of the other things that surprised you when you, know, that when you did some of these depositions? I know you had this in your testimony, which was great. Well, I, I think just a, a, few, a few remarkable things that the public doesn't really get to hear enough about or doesn't get to hear at all that I think are particularly surprising to me. Um, and, and one of them is, for example, the issue, the, the contrast between identity theft consumer, identity theft victim, uh, versus what you know and I know is called something called a mixed file. Uh, identity theft has been cast as a as purely a criminal justice problem, and that's the way the credit bureaus like to cast identity theft, as if it's somehow the only the the, the fault of the criminal the bad guy, who stole yeah. the identity, and, and certainly right. the, the the criminal is responsible. But but mixed file cases in which the credit reporting agencies are combining identities of two consumers incorrectly are exactly the same as identity theft in most instances. In, in this regard, if you use the example I described earlier of Joe Smith living on Main Street. Well, most identity theft uh, perpetrators aren't going to use exactly the same identifying information if for no other reason that if I, if I were to try to steal Mari Frank's identity using your first, last name, your social, and your home address, typically what I would accomplish is you would get a credit card in your mailbox. Yeah, they're going to change the address for sure. That is always, yeah. Yeah. Or they'll change the first name to match the ID that they're able to obtain or, or various other uh, variations. And, uh, and as a result, the, the problem is that the credit reporting agencies take this, this created identity, the thief's identity, which combines fake information with some of the information from the victim, and the credit bureaus combine that entity identity into the innocent consumer's regular credit report. Yeah, because they're usually going to use that social, or at least very close to the social, and that seems to be the the, the key to the kingdom there. That's right. In fact, worse still, one of the things that surprises me is that the credit bureaus, while while they value social security numbers over everything else, it's only necessary that seven out of the nine digits in the social security number match. Right. The credit bureaus don't require even a full nine digit match. Um, Another thing that I think really surprises me, particularly in this world where we're so concerned about about uh, identity thieves, and you look at so many of the international identity thief- theft rings uh, and efforts to to obtain credit cards for Russian ad- identity thieves and Nigerian, so forth. Well, right? Nigerians and so forth. Well, if you were to dispute to Equifax your uh, that somebody had stolen your credit information, you would write a letter 
to Equifax. It would be addressed to a P.O. box in Atlanta that Equifax sends you to. That letter is opened by a third-party outsource company in Atlanta. It is scanned electronically. And it is then electronically sent to another third-party outsource company in the Philippines. Uh, in the case of TransUnion, if you were to make a credit reporting dispute, it would get sent to either California or Philadelphia, depending upon what part of the country you're in, get scanned, and sent electronically to a third-party outsource company in India, in Mumbai, India. <laughs> and so in this instance in which we're so petrified about our, uh, the security of our personal information, uh, the idea that a consumer complaining th about the violation of that that privacy and personal security, to have that information shipped around the world, not even in the hands of the credit bureau, but to a third-party outsource company getting paid 50 cents to handle the dispute, uh, I, I think that's surprising, and that's received almost no attention, not very little public attention. Talking about data protection, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, you could have all of the best firewalls in the world, but if you have people from another country who are looking at your sensitive data and they're not even in a country where our law enforcement can do anything about it, even if they have Interpol or whatever, you know, we can't even catch these identity thieves here, let alone in, in another foreign country. That's right, and they have free access to the terminal that can pull up the full credit file of any consumer. Let me ask you something. We recently were at the Data Protection Summit and we interviewed the security officer for Experian, who, by the way, happens to be a really nice guy. He, he's, he's in security. He, he doesn't really deal with the um, anything but the security factors. Do you know what I mean? Like the firewalls and making no, sure and, that things and, are encrypted. And he doesn't know. He didn't know. I asked him a question that he really couldn't answer, so we didn't have it on there. But I asked if uh, someone who was an identity theft victim uh, would be dealing with someone outside the country talking about the human factor and security breaches, and he really didn't know that. And I, I wondered, now, when you've done this depositions of these people, I mean, are, are the people who are uh, reviewing these disputes in Pakistan or in India or in... Philippines, do they have access to the full credit report? Do you know that? Absolutely, they do. They have access uh. to the full credit report. And and to Experian's credit, Experian doesn't do that. Experian runs it out of Texas. Okay. Because uh, okay, he didn't think they did it, but we didn't uh, really talk too much about it. Yeah. And Experian, to its credit, doesn't doesn't do that. Um, and, the, and so um, he might not have known that. But right. since 2004, TransUnion has shipped the vast majority of its disputes overseas. And it's not simply overseas to uh, to a transunion employee in another country. It's it's not simply that it's it, it's in the hands of uh, a non US citizen, but as well it's in the hands of a third party company. Right. That's not nearly as invested. I mean it's it's in the hands of a foreign company not based in the United States, without responsibility to the United States government, that is being paid pennies or, or small amounts of money to handle that sensitive information. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a foreign aid jobs program. I'm sure it's because of savings, of right. cost savings. And so 
um, you know, we know that uh, that the amount of money that these folks have been paid is considerably less. Uh, that, that at least Equifax certainly is paying a lot less per dispute than it was just four or five years ago. So did you interview any of the supervisors over these people who are doing this in other countries, or or did you only speak with the people in this country? Did you have any opportunity to see what kind of safeguards they have with regard to that? Well, sure. My partner, Matt Orosquin, took the deposition of the uh, company in, uh, in Telenet that uh, does the work for TransUnion uh, and um, was effective at outlining and, and, de- and obtaining uh, their systems, and essentially it it was a system that was still in flux uh, at the time that that deposition was taken. Uh, they've been using this company for just about two years, and we're still going through some of the growing pains. Um, did you see their contract? Did Did you get a copy of? Yeah, we what? we did. It's publicly available because it was admitted in a jury trial in which a jury awarded $120,000 against TransUnion um, in the Mullins versus TransUnion case. Uh, so it was publicly admitted, uh, and, and certainly I'm happy to send Maury Frank a copy. Yeah. Now, did, what did that contract say? What kind of uh, limitations? I mean, obviously, if if there is a problem where someone steals the identity of of a person that they saw their credit report, even in Pakistan, you're going to you're going to sue TransUnion here. I mean, they can't get out of that, even though they're going to try and say, "Hey, you know, there is indemnification." What were there indemnity clauses? And well, there were some. I mean, there and there's certainly and and there's uh, there's no doubt that that TransUnion has incorporated in its contract. A uh, number of requirements that the the third third uh, party outsource vendor in India uh, take certain steps and make certain efforts to to ensure its security. Um, and I'm sure that TransUnion would defend itself, uh, expressing an interest in not having its consumer files stolen. But right, right. Um, so. I, other than what's in the contract, but in terms of indemnity, I mean these are not these are not really large companies that right, right. could indemnify TransUnion or Equifax. Right, right. Well, do you remember a couple years ago the Pakistani woman who was a medical transcriber, and um, a, um, a company, a doctor had outsourced to this medical transcriber, and she didn't get paid in a timely manner. So what she did was she uploaded some of the medical files uh, on the internet to show that this is what she's going to do if she doesn't get paid and she she disclosed a couple of files with social security numbers and and all of the health problems that that these patients had and didn't do it with all of them but she did it as like okay (laughs) if you don't give me my money i'm going to put all of these patients up on the internet do you remember that i don't remember it. yeah that was wow. a, a Pakistani lady, and it was, you know, that was a third-party outsourcing. So, yeah, it was just about two or three years ago. So that's exactly what I think of right away. Well, here's here's something that we've, you know, we now know that that Bank of America, for example, uses India uh, vendors uh, or, or India employees maybe even, but uses uh, personnel in India to handle its credit reporting disputes. So... 
in the case where a consumer were to make a dispute to TransUnion, for example, TransUnion would scan the letter, electronically send it to Intellinet in India, where Intellinet's employee would simply take the dispute, attempt to come up with the two-digit code that best describes it, and electronically zap that code, that dispute code, to Bank of America, where, in many instances, it would be received in India and responded to in India, so that <laughs> the, consu- the entire dispute process, and, and someone like yourself that has been through a significant identity theft, as well as just a consumer that's trying to get an inaccurate mortgage account corrected, or any inaccuracy corrected, um, and, and actually thinks that there's there's someone sitting in Atlanta or Fullerton, California, or or Pennsylvania, reading the dispute letter, analyzing it, can, calling people or looking at documents. I think we'd be shocked to know that if you make a ten-page dispute or a ten-word dispute, it gets sent electronically to the outsource vendor, uh, or in Texas, it's similar with Experian, just not to an outsource vendor. It gets reduced to a two-digit code, such as, for example, if an identity theft victim were to write and simply say, this is not my account, it was opened by a... Uh, a thief, yeah. Well, or, and as you know, a lot of identity theft is from an ex-husband, and a, a former spouse, right, right. or even a, a prodigal child or neighbor, right. often by someone you know. And so they'll say, this is my ex-spouse's account, I never opened it, here's copies of all of the papers and handwriting ex- exemplars and uh, everything else, uh, all of that information is then synthesized by the outsource vendor or by the ACDV employee in Texas for Experian into just a two-digit electronic code. And that, for example, might come out as a zero-one code, which then gets conveyed to Bank of America or the creditor as a dispute that simply says, not his slash hers. You know, that's such a joke, Len. When you think about what FACTA requires, it requires the victim to provide an entire affidavit. (laughs) It requires the victim to provide an identity theft report from some kind of law enforcement agencies. And you're supposed to send all of this when you're a victim, and then it gets reduced to a two-digit code. And, And I have had victims call me that said that they got letters from Experian and from TransUnion and the various credit reporting agencies to tell them that they did not provide enough information. They didn't provide a thorough enough affidavit from the Federal Trade Commission. And and similarly, <laughs> even at worse still, amongst the things that surprise me or maybe those that anger me, yes, um, <laughs> an identity theft victim who has had an account opened without their authority by an ex-spouse or a prodigal child, or uh, a relative, or John Junior, yeah, or yeah. John Junior, that's or right. John Senior. It's Sometimes the, it's the dad that'll do it to the to the kid. Yeah, I was. I'm reviewing a file right now that's that way from yep. North Carolina, uh, right. father son. But in that circumstance, all of the major credit card companies, Chase, Capital One, Bank of America, which in informally MBNA, uh, all of these companies have a an official policy that to call that a domestic dispute. Uh, if it's a family member or anyone associated with the family, then essentially the response of the credit card company is, that's your problem. And they're counting on the fact that few family members will prosecute 
the other, even if they are estranged. Um, and, and, and you know, I just want to mention here right now, because people will say this to me, and I tell them this, this is really important. Very rarely will law enforcement ever investigate. So only 10% of identity theft cases are ever investigated, but you must get a police report, whether it's a family member or not. Get the police report. It's very unlikely that there's going to be any investigation or any prosecution. And, you know, if somebody's nasty enough to do that to you, then they deserve to have a police report in their name. But, you know, you're right. If, if someone won't file a police report or some kind of identity theft report, then that's exactly how they get answered. The credit bureaus and the credit reporting agencies say, well, this is conspiracy. Well, and, and in fact, that it's, that's great advice. The uh, California, uh, where advocates like yourself have been so instrumental at getting strong laws passed, um, has led the way in a number of consumer credit protection areas. And one of them includes uh, how an identity theft victim could use a police report to clear their credit. Right. Um, California passed the law initially that said that if the consumer presents the reporting agency with a copy of a police report, the consumer reporting agency is not even allowed to ask any questions. Right. It just has to correct the information. And because California, of course, is such a large state relative to other parts of the country, the reporting agencies were, were forced to change their policy nationally. So right. initially, before it became a federal law, uh, the agencies had already adapted to the California statute. And so folks in Virginia, for example, if they had provided a police report as an identity theft victim to the reporting agency, uh, the agency would be following California law and would correct the file. And, and so, yeah, that is one of the few few ways that you can really assure that a fraudulent account is removed from your file. And it's important to know that you don't have to have a local police report. You can have an identity theft report from any local, state, or federal agency. And the postal inspector is great about doing that. So if you don't want to go to the police and it's, let's say, it's a cousin or it's a brother, you know, you can go and get it from the Department of Motor Vehicles or you can, be, or you can get it from the postal inspector because often the mails are used. So that's an important thing to know. I want to introduce you again because we've been talking. I didn't even say who you were again. We're talking to Len Bennett, who is one of the premier consumer attorneys and a great consumer advocate. He is a, an expert in privacy and the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And you can find out more about him at myfaircredit.com as well as consumerlawusa.com. So, and you can call him toll-free at 877-FCRA-LAW. So let's get back to how crazy all this is. What, let's say that um, cons- a consumer has a problem. Uh, what rights do they have under FCRA if there is a written error? What are their real rights? What are the major ones? Well, the the premier statute, and the one that's litigated most often, the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, has created two basic um, ways to address inaccurate credit reports. The first one is a requirement that the credit bureau use reasonable procedures to assure maximum possible accuracy. Um, But the one that's most often litigated is the investigation process. 
and we've talked a bit about that. The consumer needs to make very clear, detailed, documented, unambiguous uh, disputes. We've attached some dispute letters to the files at myfaircredit.com, certainly at our website, or if anybody contacts us or emails us, we're happy to provide dispute letters. But the dispute letter starts the whole process. Uh, After that, the consumer picks up their most important rights. With respect to the reporting agency, the agency has to conduct a reasonable reinvestigation. It's supposed to, although, as you know, they rarely or if ever do. Right. Uh, it's supposed to do a detailed, thorough, and independent, discretionary investigation. Uh, they're supposed to, as well, forward the dispute with all relevant information provided by the consumer to the creditor or the subscriber or the source of the alleged inaccuracy. That second part of the right is that that creditor or the provider of the inaccurate information to the agency then has to conduct its own additional investigation. So there should be, if the law were to work the way a consumer is entitled, supposed to be two different entities, the creditor and the reporting agency, both doing detailed discretionary investigations. Um, if the that's not done, and, and candidly, because it's so few consumers know of their rights or enforce their rights, the agencies don't fully comply. But if it's not done, then the consumer could sue. And the statute, as you know, is a very powerful powerful statute with a lot of teeth to really make the agencies and the creditors obey the law if a consumer takes them to court. And I think Uh, consumers need to know that if they have a really good case, if they've done their due diligence and they've written letters and they've disputed and they really have a, a, a good case, that they can get an attorney to take it on a contingency basis rather than on an hourly basis, which most people who are going through a tremendous amount of credit problems uh, don't have the funds to pay, you know, on an hourly basis. So I think that's really important for people to know because a lot of them just don't think that they can afford to litigate. Isn't that correct, Len? That is true. And I think one of the best resources for advocates that, that take these cases in that way. And the statute provides that the consumer gets their attorney's fees. The attorney gets the attorney's fees paid by the defendant. And as a as a lawyer, there's, there's less in my practice that's more satisfying than having the bad guys pay my attorney's fee bill at the end of the, the, the litigation. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but your your book has a list of, of uh, vetted advocates uh, that... Uh, Certainly, that's a source that, that we've used. Uh, NACA, the National Association of Consumer Advocates, has a website where you can find lawyers, NACA.net, for all consumer disciplines. Also, uh, my website, identitytheft.org, when you go there, there is in the resource uh, section, Identity Theft Resources, we have listed you, Len, and other people who are known to be excellent attorneys and, and real fervent advocates for consumers right on our website, also myfaircredit.com. That's right, myfaircredit.com. I mean, all of these are sources. I've, I've lifted plenty of stuff from Mari's website. Um, we also try to put as much as we can uh, on myfaircredit.com, which is a website put together uh, by lawyers around the country that do this type of work to provide as much information for consumers as, as possible. Uh, and there, there are really a lot of, of resources. I know that 
if they contact you, they contact me. The the best my assessment, the best thing about this field, and someone like the the friendship that you and I have, and the many other consumer advocates that you've worked with or I've worked with, is that there really is an unselfish uh, temperament that's I think unique for the practice of law. A lot of people are suspicious of lawyers. And it's nice being a consumer advocate uh, in a field with the types of people that I think uh, uh, really honor the profession. So I got a kick out of your testimony when you testimi- uh, testified in June of 2007. You started your testimony by saying that you were really requesting that Congress consider some important changes and if they make the fixes, that you'd be out of work <laughs> because you have an active practice, but you felt on behalf of consumers that they really do need to make changes. But if they do make those changes, you don't have any work. <laughs> that's right. I'd, I'd be out of a job if they fixed this law. That's ball. right. That's right. But I know that your heart is in the right place, and I know that, Unfortunately, we're never going to clear up all of these problems. And with the outsourcing, you know, I wanted to go back to that outsourcing. I have to tell you a a story about the outsourcing in that we have had recently a huge problem with outsourcing, just even talking to Office Depot, getting the wrong deliveries and trying to deal with somebody in Costa Rica, you know, or trying to deal with somebody in India. And, And, you know, you ask them, what is your name? candy you know you know it's not the candy and and i asked them are you in the united states no well they don't want to really tell you and what i see is they have a script in front of them they don't understand our culture they don't understand the problems that we experience because they don't have the same problems so all they can really answer is what they're given in a script and what they're taught. They can't problem solve with us like someone would be able to in our country. Did you find that as well, Lynn? Well, it's absolutely so. In fact, what we've learned um, in Matt's deposition and our other d- discovery that we've accomplished, that that these, uh, and, and frankly, it's true even for the domestic uh, employees, the U.S. employees for Experian, uh, that there's no discretion. That when a consumer makes a dispute, there's a set of rules, and the there's the employee or the outsource vendor is not permitted to vary from those rules. If the consumer, uh, if the creditor, essentially, if the creditor says, "Don't take it off the file" or "Don't correct the inaccuracy," they're not allowed to correct it. That's why we should mention here also that not only must you dispute with the credit reporting agency. But at the same time, you need to write a letter to the creditor and tell them of the error or of the identity theft so that it, it goes both places to cover yourself. Right, Len? Sure, I think so, um, particularly given the way that the, the agencies don't necessarily provide all the details of the dispute to the creditor. In litigation, it's often very helpful if we can show, for example, that the creditor has also received the same disputes and not only did the agency not do anything about it, but neither did the creditor. Exactly. So in, in terms of outsourcing, um, have you actually dealt with this, any, any issues of outsourcing in any of your recent litigation? Uh, well, in terms of, the, frankly, one of the hardest things for us in the outsourcing is, that, as, as you know, as a lawyer in litigation, we need to take depositions, right, to get right. live testimony. Right. And it, 
uh, it's probably not a coincidence that none of the none of the countries that the agencies have outsourced to are Hague Convention oh my countries, gosh. which means we can't really force depositions unless we can control or talk the agency into producing them. Now, do you uh, think that's deliberate? <laughs> uh, it, it might be deliberate. It might also be that... They're that just cheaper. They're yeah. just cheaper. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I do know Equifax used to be in Montego Bay, Jamaica, and uh, found the Philippines to be less expensive and shipped it out there. So, so what do you do about that? Do, can, will they bring somebody to the United States, or do you have to go to... Well, I mean, it's very expensive for you to do that. Oh, that's right. And it's also a long time away from my six-month-old child now. Exactly. So, <laughs> but we, we take telephonic depositions. Uh, in the case of IntelliNet, TransUnion's outsource vendor, they actually flew someone to Dallas, Texas, and my partner Matt took the deposition uh, in, in Dallas, Texas. So... It varies, uh, but most of the time, if we're going to be able to take these depositions, it's going to happen by telephone, which is better than not at all, and certainly better than me flying to India. Do you have them videotape the deposition on the other end? Sometimes. Well, we know we've not been able to videotape the deposition on uh, the other end. Because that sure would help. No, in fact, we, we have to use court reporters in the U.S. typically, and that we have to do by agreement. So. Oh, yeah, again, rough. Let's talk a little bit about background checks, because now... Most companies are doing, at least bigger companies, are doing background checks because they're going to be considered negligent if they hire an identity thief, and so that's what they're doing. What lack of rights do we have as potential employees or consumers with regard to background checks? Well, the the unique rights that, that a consumer has when they apply for a job is different than a regular credit uh, application. It are are I think pretty important. If and most employers are using these various background checks, but be it a criminal background check or even a credit report used by a prospective employer, before the employer takes any action that might be harmful or adverse to the consumer, such as denying them the job or firing them, they have to provide the consumer, the applicant, the employee, a copy of that background check in plenty of time so that if there's anything wrong with the consumer can do something about it. Uh, one of the, the leading experts in this field is a, a lawyer out in California named Les Rosen. Uh, Mr. Rosen um, recently testified for another company, for a defendant, uh, that his advice is that the employer provide this report at least 10 business days before it takes any action. Um, and some companies do it as short as five days. But most employers should know, or all employers should know, and, and some employers follow and many don't, that the, before an action is taken against an applicant, unlike a credit card account or a mortgage loan, the consumer has to get a copy of the report from the employer well ahead of time. Len, but that doesn't always happen. And especially if someone has a, for example, they've been a victim of criminal identity theft, I know of many victims who've contacted me who couldn't get a job and didn't know why they were just told that there was someone else who was a better uh, candidate, and so they didn't get the job. And then years later, I mean, two big cases that I dealt with that ended up on one on, on Dateline and one in the New York Times and also on Montel, is that that didn't happen for them. They didn't get copies of those background checks to show them that they had a criminal background. They didn't have a clue. 
I think the law should be that whether you're going to have an adverse um, you know, action or not, when you authorize a background check, and you have to give your permission for someone to get your credit report or background check um, for a job, um, that when you do that, that you should automatically get a copy of it, whether you're going to get the job or not. Well, the, the law actually, and, and I think this is an area, we're, we are litigating heavily, and I don't know anybody else is really litigating it uh, right now, but we're, we've had a lot of success uh, in the last couple of years in this field on behalf of consumers, individual and class basis. And, but the law actually requires that a reporting agency that is furnishing an employer report that contains derogatory public records, like the criminal history, has to notify the consumer at the same time that they're providing the report to the furnisher, to, to, the, to the employer, rather, has to notify the consumer that the report's being furnished. And similarly, the employer is required, in addition to providing the report well ahead of time, to provide a written statement to the consumer explaining that they used the background check or the report to take that adverse action that would explain it. Now, I agree with you that very few employers are fully complying and very few reporting agencies. We we have a, a number of cases ongoing against the major criminal background check companies and, and very few agencies and very few employers are following the long-established law, but it's certainly very important. And employees, if somebody has applied for a job, knows a background check, might have been involved, uh, they need to insist and find out whether it was furnished, who furnished it, and uh, and if that played any role. And certainly, uh, they have every right, and they have a lot of, of leverage using the Fair Credit Reporting Act to insist on that right. So, really and truly, what, for example, some of the major information brokers, and, and you know, whether it be ChoicePoint or now LexisNexis and ChoicePoint are together, or Axiom or any of the big ones, um, are those the ones that you're suing right now? Or Those are. We, we're suing ChoicePoint and LexisNexis uh, right now. Um, and we, I think, come up with some solutions in those. Um, we're suing a number of employers. We've got, we've got consumers who were harmed by the conduct of most of the other major agencies. Um, and, and it's not just even these criminal background check companies, because these laws apply to the conventional credit reporting companies. Exactly. But uh, they don't have, but your, your credit report isn't necessarily going to have the kind of criminal background check and all the, the, those kinds of things that a regular, you know, uh, information broker is going to collect from the public records uh, to show arrest records and, and conviction records. That isn't going to show up on your credit report, right? That's right. It's, it's mostly the, the conventional credit reports will be produced for security clearances. Right. They'll be produced for, for financial services jobs, such as a bank teller. Right. Um, Actually, now a lot of companies are doing it whether they, you know, anybody who has access to sensitive information in any kind of job, it's, we, we recommend that you do a background check. But we also recommend that if you're going to do a background check, you give the copy immediately to the potential employee. I just I just hired somebody new, and we got the credit report, and we gave you know we we looked at it together. You know my new my new assistant. So that's very different than just turning somebody down or just saying there's somebody else better. We don't you know we don't want to hire you for that. But tell me in terms of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, 
a lot of the information brokers have been saying that the same uh, rights that we have don't apply with regard to the background check. You don't have the same correction rights, correct? No, absolutely not. The, as you're well aware, um, the Fair Credit Reporting Act uses the term consumer report. And a consumer report includes uh, a, a very broad uh, array of information that right to your character, database. everything exactly your mode of living, your character, uh, anything bearing on your um, eligibility for uh, for credit, for insurance, for employment, and right. I, I think the the only uh, argument that these companies are making, and it's mostly because it's it's made when it's not challenged, is that. Uh, they have their customers. I mean, take the example of LexisNexis. LexisNexis sells two different products. It sells one product for employers that it admits is governed by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Mm -hmm. And it sells a second product called Accurant right. that it makes any user swear is not or, or sign uh, in their contract will not be used for a, a Fair Credit Reporting Act purpose. But it's essentially the same information and obtained by the agency in the same way. Um, and under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it's governed by the same statute. So uh, it, it is governed, and, and that's I mean, some of the some of the controversy from the the very data breaches and so forth uh, uh, could be remedied and could be addressed. Not all of it, but some of it could be addressed by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Well, Len, we are going to have to have you back to talk more about that. And I know now who to recommend. A lot of people, too, when they have a problem with a background check, now that I know that you're really actively doing this, because I know a lot of attorneys have stayed away from that. But Lloyd is telling us it's time to go. Will you give your websites again and your toll-free number? Sure. Uh, our toll-free number, you can call Matt Oroskin or myself at 877-FCRA-LAW. Our websites are www.consumerlawusa.com or uh, we're a bunch of friends together at www.myfaircredit.com. Uh, Mari, I'm honored to have somebody of your uh, achievement uh, ask me on your show, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, we are so thrilled to have you, and we're going to have you back again. And um, I can't wait to see when you uh, testify in Congress again. I'm going to be rooting for you. So thank you again, and we'll All talk right. to you soon. Thank you much. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. And look at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and see our upcoming guests, listen to our previous archived interviews, download podcasts, and write us an email. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.